You're listening to a sermon from Lakeview Baptist Church. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at 6 o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. So we continue to muse upon that redeeming love as our theme. Uh, turn in your Bible to John chapter 13. Thank you, Adam, orchestra and choir, for setting our attention on that theme this morning. We will continue in that theme in our passage. We're going to be looking at verses 6 to verse 17. But for our context, we looked at this last week, John 13, 1 to 5. Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that our spiritual eyes would be enlightened to the infinite humiliation of our Lord Jesus Christ for us and our salvation. We pray, Lord, this morning that you would incline our hearts towards his gospel, that you would open our eyes to behold your steadfast love and faithfulness found in your son. That you would unite our hearts to fear your name this morning. Protect us from distraction. And Lord, that you would satisfy us with that redeeming love we just sang about. And we ask this for Christ's sake and by the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, Heather and I had the opportunity to go to Maui on our honeymoon. And the first full day that we were there, we took one of those public catamarans that would take you from Maui uh, to the island of Lanai. And so when we first got on the boat, I noticed that one of the the boat hands had a WJD bracelet on. Well, this was the 90s, and so that's not surprising to see that bracelet, except it was Hawaii. And so I began to observe uh, this man, this young man, and throughout the day, it it just disturbed my spirit how profane he was. Uh, He he spoke um, about profane things in profane ways, and and he he was inviting everyone to uh, the keg party that he was having that night on the island, and, and so... As providence has it, towards the end of the day, Heather and I were standing next to him on the boat. 
And he noticed that I had, had, I had a, a Maui dive shop t-shirt on. I had bought it at a local dive shop. And he said, Maui dive shop. He said, do you ever go diving? I said, no, I've never been diving in my life. And he said, that's false advertising. <laughs> I looked down at his bracelet. And I said, WWJD. Do you ever do what Jesus would do? And boy, he blushed, beat red. And I said, you know what's coming, don't you? That's false advertising. Well, the fact is, WWJD, what would Jesus do, is a, is a very important question. It's a, it's a biblical question, in fact. For instance, Peter will write in 1 Peter 2, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And even in our passage today, in verse 15, we read, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. But here's what I want you to understand. That question alone, what would Jesus do, would slay us all. It would condemn us all. We would run in terror if that was the only question because there's not a single person here who does what Jesus did in a manner that fully is consistent with the law of God. Indeed, that question alone, as important as it is, condemns us like the law. As a result, the most important question is not WWJD, but it's WHJD. What has Jesus done? That is the most important question. And with that answer and believing the answer to that question comes the mainspring of true obedience, of true desire and capacity to actually do what Jesus would do, albeit in an imperfect way. We see that very order today. Uh, Jesus, by way of his infinite dissension, his infinite humiliation, came to accomplish definitively and once for all our salvation, that we might have the forgiveness of sins that we might have a, a, a perfect, an alien righteousness that can stand before the infinite, perfect righteousness of God. And with that, as the ground of our hope and the source of our power, Christ in us, the hope of glory, Jesus tells us that we can actually descend to undeserving others for their redemptive good just as he has done for us, certainly not in an atoning way, but in the sacrificial way that he displays. Now, last time we saw uh, Jesus' humiliation was a display of infinite love. We looked at humiliation as this. Jesus, the Son of God, was born, and that in a lowly condition. He was made under the law as our substitute, he underwent the miseries of this life, the wrath of God to propitiate his wrath, 
the cursed death of the cross, he was buried. Think about that. The eternal son of God was buried and remained under the power of death for a time. That's Christ's humiliation. And one aspect of this we see in our passage today, but we saw last week, this humiliation was a display of infinite love. The second thing we see today in our passage, starting in verse 6, is that Jesus' humiliation is a symbol of saving cleansing, at least how he expresses his humiliation in our passage. So look with me in verse 6. Jesus has washed their feet, and in verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. By the way, that's a, that's a good principle for every believer to take heed of. God is doing things in your life that you may not understand now, but you perhaps will understand later. Not everything, but there are many things he is doing now that you will understand later. It's kind of like uh, the Puritan who said, reading God's providence and his ways in our life is like reading Hebrew. You can only read it backwards. Well, Jesus promises Peter that he would understand it later, and we see we know that he will. Verse 8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And so Peter himself was not prepared to carry out this menial, humbling duty to others. And he was appalled to think that his Lord, that his teacher would do it to them. But Peter, or Jesus, essentially says, Peter, you have missed the point. And the fact is, many have missed the point ever since. Many take this story and, and, and make it just merely a, a lesson, like you learn from Aesop's tales or something, a lesson about how to, how to serve others. And it's certainly an important lesson, as we'll see. But what they tend to do is overlook the context. The context is the cross. This is taking place, it's kind of like a, a prophetic parable. He is acting out what he is going to do in some 15 to 18 hours later. And so these two events, Jesus washing the feet of his disciples and that gruesome crucifixion are being connected by Jesus. That is that the exalted Messiah, the exalted Christ is assuming and has assumed the role of a despised servant for the good of others. And that plus the reality of cleansing, as we see through this passage, explains why the foot washing here points us to the cross. And that's why Jesus says to Peter, if you, if you refuse the sign of what I have come to do, then you will not take part and experience the reality to which it points, which is my dying on the cross to wash you from your sins. You will have no share in me. You will have no share in my salvation that I've come to accomplish. 
It's what Jesus is saying to him. And that's why I love that melody this, that we sang this morning, centered on the blood of Christ that, is, that was shed that we might have the cleansing of sin from sin. Well, notice in verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Well, Peter still clearly misses the point that Jesus is, is driving home. Jesus was not stressing physical cleansing, as if in some mysterious way, and some traditions, by the way, teach this, in some mysterious way, physical cleansing made a person a sharer in the blessings that Jesus provides. Peter clearly, erroneously thinks that Jesus was making the washing of his feet a condition for sharing in Jesus, having a relationship with Jesus. But it was what the foot washing symbolized that was the point that Jesus was making. Jesus, the Son of God, think about this. As this eternal Son of God, he is the agent of creation. Paul said all things were created through Christ and for Christ. So not only is he the agent of creation, he's the point of creation. And as a result, he consistently appealed to the created order to teach us about spiritual things. So for instance, we saw in John chapter 3 that Jesus speaks of spiritual rebirth when he's speaking to Nicodemus. He takes the analogy of a, a baby being born. He speaks about spiritual rebirth. In John chapter 4, he's speaking to the woman at the well, and he speaks about this spiritual water by which you will never thirst again. John chapter 6, he multiplies the fishes and loaves, and he speaks about spiritual nourishment by which you will never hunger again. In John chapter 8, he speaks about this spiritual light, being the spiritual light of the world who overcomes the darkness. John chapter 9, he speaks about spiritual sight being recovered as he, as he healed the man who had been born blind from birth. And then in John chapter 11, he raises Lazarus physically, but he speaks there of spiritual life that his word, his efficacious word brings forth. But Peter, very present at most of these, if not all of these signs and these times where Jesus taught, clearly did not understand. It makes me feel better, doesn't it? If you think about it, we're a lot like Peter. He didn't get it, but he did get one thing. And it's what Jesus says here when he says, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. In verse 10, Jesus said to him, the one, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean, but not every one of you. Now, we're going to speak to this next week, so I'll spend more time on, on Judas next week. But Jesus is clearly making a distinction between those who are clean and those who are not clean. Jesus was not a universalist. Not everybody goes to heaven. You have to be cleansed in order 
to go to heaven. But here he speaks about the fact that at least 11 of the 12 have been clean. So what Jesus is saying here is that the initial and fundamental cleansing that he secures for every believer is a once-for-all act. Again, they're already clean, he says. You don't need to wash except your feet. You're completely clean. And this kind of cleansing that he's referring to here is once for all. If you are in Christ, you have been united to Christ, you are forever clean in this way. You have been united to the Holy and Righteous One. That's what Paul was referring to in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, earlier in Romans 3, Paul says there's an unrighteous. So that's bad news. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, and there's an unrighteous. So what gives? You have to understand the bad news in order, in order to understand and celebrate the good news. Verse 11, but you were washed. Get that? Once for all. Isn't that a, we have a glorious gospel. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. And so there is an initial once-for-all cleansing that comes through the all-sufficient work of Jesus who cleanses us by his blood. And yet, believers, individuals who have been cleansed by Jesus' atoning work once for all still need to have the iniquity we commit every day cleansed away, even though the fundamental cleansing never need be repeated again. That's what John means when he says in 1 John, if we confess our sins, and by the way, that, that's the mark of a believer. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. He's always faithful. He's always just to forgive our sins and get this and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the daily cleansing that we need. And so when the Lord bathes us all over, to use that, that metaphor, in our regeneration and in our conversion to Christ where we're united to the Holy One, that's what Paul means when he says in Titus 3, we were saved not, not because of any righteous things we have done. We, we were saved because of His mercy. We were saved through the washing of rebirth and regeneration renewal by the Spirit of our God, when he bathes us all over completely once for all, he reckons us as righteous. He reckons us as cleansed once for all. You can't be uncleansed if you are in Christ. But this also includes a reckoning on our part as well. Paul will say we are to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, Romans 6, verse 11. And so we, we have union with Christ. That's a permanent gift. 
When we're united to Christ, we are cleansed once for all. But in order to have communion with him, we need to have daily cleansing through confession and repentance as that blood that was once for all so cleansing to us readdresses the daily sins we commit. In other words, in order to have communion, we must repent daily. We must confess our sins daily. We must be washed by the word, as Ephesians 5 says. You know, this is illustrated by the Old Testament priesthood. In Exodus 29, when the priests are first consecrated for duty, they, they have an entire bath. They're, they're bathed all over. That's Exodus 29. That will never be repeated again. The, the priests are bathed once for all, all over. But during their daily ministry, they had to have their hands and their feet cleansed at the brass lever in the courtyard in order for them to come into the holy place. That's a beautiful illustration of what Jesus is referring to here. And so we are cleansed once for all in Christ by his cross. And then one of the evidences that we've been cleansed is we want our feet and hands cleansed every day through confession and repentance. It's the mark of the believer. And so we've seen Jesus' humiliation uh, is a symbol of his saving cleansing. In the last part of this passage, we see that his humiliation is actually also a model of Christian conduct. This is where it gets in our business. So far, we've been rejoicing. Boy, this is good news. Jesus has cleansed us. And even, even the, the things I may have thought this morning or said this morning or did this morning have been cleansed once for all in Jesus. Well, he's about to get into our business, starting in verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, we saw last week how that condescension really is a picture of Christ's incarnation taking on human flesh and then finishing the work and, and then ascending to the right hand of the Father. He resumes his place. He said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Now, the fact that he is teacher means that uh, one of the evidences that we are his pupils is that we seek to be taught by him, right? It, it's the fruit on the tree. It's not what saves us. It's the mark of the Christian. And the fact that he is Lord means we are in submission to him. There's no area of our life that we've sequestered off from him. He, he's Lord over everything. He has all authority over my life, and yet I recognize I, I sin daily, and I have to, to, to confess that and repent of that. I need my feet cleaned daily. But notice what he says. If, he says, if then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Again, he's speaking metaphorically here. Certainly, the, the washing of feet is a, is a beautiful symbol. 
But this speaks to, some, to things far beyond just the washing of feet. He says, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And so he's teacher, he's our Lord, uh, and by this acted out parable, he's our Savior. But here, Jesus is also our example. This is where the question, what would Jesus do, comes into play. We've already been cleansed because of what Jesus has done. That's the ground of our hope, the ground of our security. But now we need to ask the question, what would Jesus do? He is our example. And his example becomes the, the grid, if you will, of the normal Christian life. This isn't for special forces Christians. This is the normal Christian life. So the question isn't merely, how would I like others to treat me? And then I'm going to treat them that way. There's a place for that, golden rule. But the question here is, how has Jesus treated me? And then that becomes our model. Note, just as I have done. Verse 15. Wow, just as I have done to you. Jesus is saying, that the normal Christian life is the subordination of one's personal interest, private interest for the redemptive good of those who don't deserve it. Which means it is for your good he places people in your life who don't deserve your love. It's his strategy. We tend to run from that, but we're running from his strategy. Not only is he teaching us what redemptive love looks like, he's given us an opportunity to display it. And so when God places, not if, when God places people in your life who do not deserve this, he's giving you an opportunity to actually follow the example of Jesus. Don't run from it. You're running, you're running from a gift. It's a gift. It's what was called in the colonial era, being disinterested. Now, when we think about being disinterested, I, I tend to think uh, of being disinterested in you, being disinterested in your life. But in the colonial era, which had a stronger, much stronger world, Christian worldview than we have, being disinterested meant literally being disinterested in pursuing one's own interest for the sake of the common good, for the others. You know, it's interesting later... Actually, later with regard to events, Peter probably wrote his epistle before John wrote his gospel. But Peter will say, and he was in that room, he had his feet washed, as we, we see. Didn't want them washed. <laughs> but he says later in 1 Peter 5, clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another. 
It, it really is reminiscent of Jesus clothing himself with this towel around his waist. I think that's where he's picking that up. Well, notice what Jesus says in verse 16 as he continues this thought. Truly, truly, I say to you, 25 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, Amen, Amen. Maybe uh, your translation reads, Verily, verily, truly, truly, 25 times in the Gospel of John. And what follows is something very significant. So, for instance, in John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so Jesus will say, truly, truly, when he's about to give a warning. Other times he will say, truly, truly, when he's about to teach something about himself. For instance, in John chapter 8, truly, truly, verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was born, I am. And here, Jesus says, truly, truly, when he teaches us something very important about the life of faith about the Christian life. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you better listen is what he's saying. A servant is not greater than his master. Who's the master? Jesus. What'd the master do? He washed the feet of those who don't deserve it. Nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So Jesus who most definitely washed Judas' feet. The text indicates he, he, he washed all of their feet. Jesus, who washed G Judas' feet, is saying, because the servant is not greater than the master, that there are no exceptions to the feet you will wash. And again, foot washing here is, is, is metaphorical. It extends to everything where we're called to descend for the sake of other people's good. And every fleshly response that says, mm -mm, not his. And you've said it because your pastor has said it. Every fleshly response that says, not hers. That fleshly response is being drowned out by the sacrificial love of Jesus for us. This language of the servant not greater than his master, he's going to use it again in John 15. In John 15, 20, he's going to say, which, by the way, took place in this same conversation, in the same place. He's going to say, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So don't live your Christian life trying to avoid persecution by keeping your mouth shut because you're not greater than your master. And he experienced persecution, even unto death. But in this context, he is reinforcing the lesson that a true disciple should not hesitate 
to follow the example of his master, of Jesus. Again, just as I have done to you. I, I underlined just as in my Bible. It's haunting because I know how short I fall. So what do I do when I, when I fall short of this? I run back to the cleansing blood of Jesus because I've been cleansed from not following his example. But then the Holy Spirit takes me back to the text with a new desire to obey where I have fallen short. That's the glory of the gospel. You never get past the gospel. Indeed, just as Jesus' humiliation will ultimately lead to his eternal blessedness, his exaltation, Jesus says this way and this way alone is the way of blessedness for his disciples. And that's how he closes out this passage, verse 17. If you know these things. Now, let me tell you, I spent 19 years on campus at Southern. And I love seminary. And I love Southern Seminary. But often we stop there. If you know these things, you are blessed. It's not enough. Jesus says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That's the condition. Now, let me try to explain what he's saying. I'm, I believe he's saying in one sense, if you don't seek to do them, albeit in an imperfect way, we're never going to do it perfectly. That's why we need the gospel that cleanses us once for all. But if you don't try to do them, you won't experience the blessing of eternal life because it's evidence that you're not a disciple. But for the sake of those who have trusted in Jesus and you, you desire to honor him, you desire to please him, you desire to follow his example, here's what he's saying. If you know these things, you are blessed if you know them and if you do them. There's a blessing that comes with that. Not just a blessing on the other side of death, but a blessing in this life. It's the way of true blessing. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, blessed are you if you have these things done to you. We may tend to suppose that the blessing comes when you have a lot of people serving you. But I read a lot of biographies on, and, and, and one of the things that I, that I see constantly is some of those miserable people in the world are people who have a lot of people serving them. The happiest people in the world are those who've given their lives away for those who don't deserve it. Jesus says it's more conducive to happiness, to blessedness, that our hearts are like his. Now, let me qualify this by saying that this does not mean foot washing should be an ordinance of the church. Some churches have done that. I'm not saying it's a heresy. But in the New Testament, the apostles instruct the church to continue baptizing and to continue observing the Lord's Supper. We're never, we're never told to continue observing foot washing. They never instruct churches to do that. 
Yet they do instruct churches to be servant-hearted, all right? That's the point behind what Jesus is doing. And every believer faces situations on a weekly basis and people that require this. And it's God's strategy. We encounter difficult people. We encounter painful people. By the way, you're, you're the painful person sometimes because I know I am. I'm the difficult person sometimes. In other words, we encounter each other, all right? And our natural instinct is to say they don't deserve this. No. Neither did the, the 12. Think about 11 of them, as I said last week. When Jesus got arrested, they fled the scene. Did Peter deserve it? Later that night or early the next morning, he's going to betray him or deny him three times. How about Judas? Did Judas deserve it? Judas is going to actually betray him unto death. Here's the question. Did you deserve it? Do we deserve it? No, we don't. But it was in fact, Jesus going low for us to the cross, his humiliation that actually saved and changed you. And as his ambassadors, and that's what we are, we, we represent a, a king in a foreign land. As his ambassadors, we have to know that sinners form their view of Christ initially from their view of us. And that's why the apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 2.15, we are, that is believers, are an aroma of Christ to God. Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And what is Jesus' aroma? Sacrificial, humbling servanthood unto death for the redemptive good of those who don't deserve it. Lord, help us. That's his aroma. And that should be our aroma. St. Clair Ferguson in one of his books, told the story of when he was in elementary school in Scotland. Evidently, milk is big in Scotland. And they would bring these pints of milk, crates of milk to their classroom every morning. And every morning, uh, the students would drink a pint of milk. And he did that all of his school years. He found out later that... Japanese people who don't drink as much milk as Westerners said that Scottish people smell like milk. <laughs> now, this is a, a Scottish person saying that. He said, that's hardly surprising. If you're not from a nation of milk drinkers, he says your senses would be sensitive to people who are drinking pints of milk every week. Analogously, Believers should leave the aroma of Christ behind with every human encounter they have 
and the strength of that aroma will be proportionate to the amount of sacrificial, dying to self, servanthood and love that we show to those who don't show it back, to those who don't deserve it, to those who frustrate you to no end. To summarize here, Jesus saying the, the only way to bless him is first of all to be served by him in his death on the cross for our sins, for the cleansing from our sins. And to sacrificially, in response to that, love those who do not love us back. That's our marching orders. Everything else is a parody of the Christian life. Everything else actually eclipses the love of Christ to others. It brings an alien aroma to them that does not represent Jesus. And the blessing comes with not just knowing this, but doing it. And we've been resourced to do it. As the life of Christ is lived through every believer by the power of the Spirit. You know, Jesus' teaching at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, I think, concludes similarly. He speaks about those who build their lives on the sand. Who are those? They, 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 they hear the word. So he's talking about those who are religious people, people that go to church. But they think the blessing just comes in hearing and knowing. But they don't do it. And then the storms come and they're, their houses are destroyed. But then there's others who build their house on the rock. They hear it, they know it, and they do it. Lakeview Baptist Church has been summoned this morning by the word of our Christ. As Adam and the musicians come forward, maybe you recognize you can do this in your seat. You can you could do this at the aisle, whatever it may be, at the altar. Maybe you realize, I have been bearing false witness to who Jesus is and what he came to do. I'm a believer. My sins have been cleansed once for all, but I need my feet washed today. And I need to confess and I need to repent of that. And I'm going to commit to walk the way of the Via Della Rosa the way of self-sacrifice, the cross, that I might be an aroma of Jesus Christ to those who are perishing and to those who are being saved. Or maybe you realize this way is foreign to me because I have not been clean. I have not been cleaned by the Lord Jesus Christ and I need to be cleaned. I need to be washed in the blood. And you can do that today as you repent of your sins and flee to Christ for the cleanse, cleansing of every sin you've ever committed will commit in the future. Isn't that a glorious gospel? Don't turn down. Don't refuse that gospel. Flee to him this morning as we stand and as we sing. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, 
we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.